Welcome to the University of Bath's Research with Impact podcast. I'm Roland Pease, and in this series, I'll be speaking with some of the university's world-leading experts whose research is tackling current challenges that face our society. In this episode, the topic is the environment. In particular, that question that's been hanging in the air ever since the intergovernmental climate negotiations, COP26, held in Glasgow last year. How do we quickly reach net zero? Technology is key, of course, and governmental decisions and industrial investment. But we're all involved as individual consumers whose choices make a difference, whether it's reducing flights, changing diets, recycling, insulating homes, or a hundred other small changes to daily life. As a professor of environmental psychology at the University of Bath, Lorraine Whitmarsh has scrutinised how we make those choices. She's an expert lead for the Climate Assembly UK and also found time to support the Netflix climate parody, Don't Look Up. Public attitudes are changing, she told me, but government policies are critical. I think actually what we know from our polling is that the vast majority of the public are very concerned about climate change. They want more action on it. But when it comes to kind of day-to-day choices about what am I going to buy for my supper or how am I going to travel to work, usually those things are motivated by cost, convenience, health, taste, a whole range of other factors. And I think what we see is there are so many barriers very often to people doing the right thing. They do want to do greener things. They support that. But actually what they find is that while there might sometimes be occasions where it's cheaper or more convenient to do the green thing, more often than not, there are barriers. And sometimes those things are the case because government just hasn't actually provided the incentives or the regulations to encourage people to change. So we do need much stronger policies, I think. But you say you know that people are thinking like this. Absolutely. So what we have seen from our recent research is that If you show people a list of the sorts of policies that we might put in place to reach net zero, uh, things from like frequent flyer levies or putting a tax on meat or phasing out uh, gas boilers, for example, those sorts of things for the majority of the public, that they would support those sorts of policies. How do you do these surveys? Because, you know, I haven't had that conversation with someone who's a frequent flyer and said, would you pay more or cut down your flying? So in that case, we surveyed over a thousand members of the British public, and this was towards the end of 2021. And we didn't just say, what do you think of frequent flyers? We actually sort of spelt out what it might look like. And then we said, well, would you support the policy? And then we had lots of follow-up questions where we said, well, would you still support it if it personally cost you more or if it was very inconvenient or and a series of other questions around fairness and trade-offs and so on. And we certainly found that support dropped a little bit when we said, if it cost you personally. But nevertheless, even with that one, we saw most people would support it. And you say you did that around the end of 2021. Yeah. So was that in connection with the climate negotiations that were going on? That's right. It was actually just before the COP26 uh, summit. Um, And we do know that public concern about climate change was heightened around that time. But nevertheless, what we've actually seen um, over the last two or three years is a steady increase in concern about climate change amongst the UK public and amongst many publics around the world. And interestingly, not even dented by COVID. In fact, it actually grew a little bit. Because the the question of the 
COP26 climate negotiations. I think it's very interesting because I think lots of us are worried about it and want to do something about it in us, our individual consumption, ultimately, that results in the carbon dioxide. But we feel powerless and we feel the need that governments have to do this. And I presume this is sort of in that mix for you. Yeah, very much so. Now, now, what's quite interesting is we've recently done some work comparing what people thought about COVID and what they thought about climate change in terms of their role versus the government role. And um, what our research shows is that actually... Whereas for COVID, people thought that both the government and individuals have shared responsibility for tackling the pandemic, that we all have to play our part. With climate change, there is a gap. They do think that they have a role to play, but they consider that government has a much bigger role to play and that they're going to be much more effective in taking action. So there isn't quite that same sense of personal responsibility or a feeling that if I do anything, it will make a difference. There's that sort of feeling that, you know, it's a big sort of collective problem, but actually by myself, I'm not going to be able to to do that much. So there's a way to go, I think, before the public really feel like they have a big role to play. It's that a psychological sort of deficit or is it realism? I think it's both. I think actually uh, it is an accurate probably representation of the fact that individuals, you know, can only do so much. And actually, yes, you can have the lowest carbon lifestyle of anybody you know, in your country, but that's not going to be enough to stop climate change. You're not necessarily going to be able to protect yourself from from the impacts. Um, we do we do all need to be radically changing what we do in order to actually effectively tackle the risk. At the same time. Because climate change is a global long-term threat, something which oftentimes we can sort of forget about, psychologically it is something which is distant and it doesn't affect us in our day-to-day lives so much. So that psychological distance, as we as we call it, is a, is a problem when it comes to actually motivating people to act. Uh, and that ties in, I think, I'm curious what you were saying about COVID because uh, I've had a lot of conversations with people how COVID was a crisis with a scientific explanation that was right on our doorstep and one of the things was we saw the pictures of the hospitals filling up and we knew about our neighbours who were ill and so on so there was a a kind of very motivating fact compared to this slowly unfolding climate disaster I I don't know I mean are there lessons that you're looking at from Covid to try and make that connection? Yeah, we have actually been doing exactly that, actually. And so what what we know from COVID is that the government can act when they want to, and the public will radically change their behaviour when they want to, and when they're enabled and, and supported to do that. The differences between the two risks are clear, not just psychologically, because yes, you're right, actually, you just had to look out the window and see that other people were wearing masks or staying at home. There was a social norm to comply and to play your part in terms of tackling the risk. With climate change, we don't have that social norm. In fact, the norm is to sort of consume and to travel and everybody wants to have, you know, high consuming lifestyles. So the the norm really isn't there to comply with having a low carbon lifestyle attack on climate change yet, nor are the signals clear from government. So one of the other things that we've found is that people inferred the severity of the COVID risk from what government were telling them. So in other words, government said, we're having a lockdown and people thought, we've never had a lockdown before. This must be the most serious risk we've ever encountered. So they inferred the severity of the risk from the government response. 
when we look at what's happening with climate change, we have very mixed government signals. We have airport expansion, we have, you know, cutting duty on domestic flights and various other policies that appear to undermine efforts to tackle climate change, along with some sort of high level rhetoric about sort of tackling the issue. But the public doesn't doesn't have a clear sense that actually the government really is taking it seriously or and, and therefore perhaps this isn't the climate crisis that some people are telling us. I mean, are you talking in your work to people in government and saying, look, we've learned this, <laughs> you could actually make a difference by using this messaging or something like that? We have, yeah, we're, we're in discussions very regularly with members of, with Bayes, with, with DFT, with others, to try to sort of convey our findings. And some of these are starting to get through and I'm involved as well in the House of Lords inquiry at the moment that's um, looking at the role of behaviour change in reaching uh, environmental targets and and what is coming out of that inquiry is very clear that the the government is not doing enough on climate change and specifically not enough on behaviour change to tackle net zero so um, yeah I think there's going to be some strong messages coming out of that too. On On a slightly different tangent another project that you were involved with was to do with the film Don't Look Up, mm-hmm. which had, was an interesting film. Maybe you need to explain what it is, but were you riding the crest of this film or did you actually get to meet Leonardo DiCaprio? <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet Leonardo DiCaprio, but he did tweet me on Twitter. He did He did thank me for my contribution to <laughs> the resources around the film. And so my, my role was very minor, but all I did was basically help provide some input around climate anxiety. So I helped a bit with that. But the premise of the film is a bit like COVID. We could see the effect. The idea was you'd compress the timeline for global warming by yes. illustrating it with a comet impact coming in six months. Yeah, one of the cool things about the film is that it uses humour, basically. It, it sort of tries to uh, draw in a mass audience, you know, huge stars um, in the film. So you, you probably wouldn't have any sense that it was even about climate change, but a lot of people sort of could read that was the subtext here, that actually, yeah, we're, we're, we're basically burying our head in the sand when it comes to climate change, and it's becoming incredibly visible, and how can you not uh, do something about it? And yet our leaders and everybody else are trying to look the other way and the fact that they were worried about the climate doomism which is a big phrase and I I have to say I understand it when some of the stories come out about the impacts of heat waves recently in India or fires and hurricanes and so on it's very easy to be overwhelmed I think particularly as an individual I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think we've just recently done some work around climate anxiety, actually, in the UK. And although our survey findings show that climate anxiety is at very low levels amongst the public, a lot of people are reporting being concerned um, and that they feel also frustrated and powerless around climate change particularly amongst younger people that does seem to be an area where there probably is a bit more cause for concern so I think this is something that we need to be careful around the messaging on climate change so you talk about sort of doomism I think it can it is very easy to get depressed really when you look at the impacts of climate change that are happening now and likely to get worse in the future but actually it's important when we're talking about climate change to 
probably focus more on the positives of taking climate action. And actually, one of the big messages from the IPCC is it can improve your well-being to take climate change action. It can improve your health. It can improve your mental well-being. It can maybe save you money and lots of other things besides. So talking about the positives, I think, is probably a better approach. And that was part of what you were doing on the website for the film Don't Look Up. Yeah, that was one of the things. And the other thing we said was actually... The more you take action, ideally with other people, to tackle climate change, the more you will feel actually something can be done. You'll feel less disempowered if you actually take some steps to, you know, play a part. And you'll actually get a sense that you're making more of a difference if you do that with a group of like-minded people. Reducing fossil fuel use by switching to green energy supplies, cutting air miles, choosing electric vehicles are clear contributions the public can make to achieving net zero. But manufacturing industries generate carbon emissions in more complex ways, so that your new energy-saving washing machine may arrive at the door with a built-in carbon debt, for example. Consumers need a much better sense of what these embedded emissions are if we're to get to net zero, engineer Marcel McManus told me. As Professor of Energy and Environmental Engineering at the University of Bath, she's helping to develop approaches to carbon accounting that capture these impacts, as well as advising industry on how to avoid them. That goes beyond improving energy input, she says, and includes being wiser about your material inputs and smarter about reusing your waste. All part of the circular economy. There's lots of ways in which we can reduce the emissions in manufacturing, so changing electricity mixes, so there's there's that. But we can also capture the emissions, any emissions which are being released from manufacturing, and we can reuse these materials um, a lot more often and more frequently. But we need to think differently. And at the moment, the economics doesn't always match the environmental impact. So something which is cheap financially can have a really big environmental impact and something which has a big environmental impact doesn't always have a high financial cost. So we're not costing our impact on the environment. Okay, this, uh, I mean, if we take steel, so mm-hmm. that goes into so much, so many goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way of making steel is you get a whole, a, a whole chunk of iron ore, you mix it up with some coal, you burn it all up together, the coal takes away the the oxygen mm-hmm. from the iron ore and that ends up as carbon dioxide. That's correct. And that's going to end up in the atmosphere. That's correct. And what we're doing is we're looking at how we can use that carbon dioxide. Um, so we all know we want to capture carbon dioxide and many people will know the term carbon capture and storage or maybe even the term carbon capture utilisation and storage. And what one of the things that we're doing in some of our projects is working with um, across different universities and with industry to look at how we can capture this carbon dioxide and these emissions and turn them into something valuable. So it's concentrated when it comes out of the furnace? It's concentrated, so it's easier to capture than what we call as direct air capture, where the carbon is a lot more dilute. So we can take this carbon dioxide and then we can turn it into valuable um, chemicals as well as stopping it going up into the atmosphere. That decarbonises the steel production process, but it also produces a valuable material, which otherwise we would have had to make from a fossil fuel base. Okay, so 
you can use that CO2. We can. But there's a cost to that? There is. There is environmental costs and there's financial costs, obviously. Um, and what we're working on is trying to reduce both of these. So we're working at optimising the processes. Um, we're looking at um, turning some of this carbon dioxide into different platform chemicals, such as volatile fatty acids, which is something which is used um, across a wide variety of different materials. Um, and it's normally made with fossil fuels. So these are really chemical feedstocks for chemical industries Indeed, yes. So they could be used for all sorts of different things. So by doing this, then we're reducing our um, demand for fossil fuels in the future as part of the petrochemical industry, but we're also helping decarbonise existing technologies. I mean, at the moment, you say that you can make these chemicals starting from, let's uh, presumably when you say fossil fuels, we're talking about oil. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I imagine that's relatively cheap and simple just to pull the stuff out of the ground, send most of it off to be burnt in cars and factories and stuff, and then sideline a little bit for your chemistry industry. Of course, um, and that's the way we've always done it. But we know that with the catastrophic effects of climate change, which we will see if we don't change, the costs of not doing anything are going to be significant and so this is a way of reducing the potential impact of climate change i mean is part of your research then not just seeing how effective it is but how you can persuade people to do it because i mean it does it basically mean uh, you know finance ministers kicking industry up the backside <laughs> to get it happen well actually it's interesting you say that because it's the industry who are really really keen on doing it so the industry are coming to us and asking us to work with them they're very interested in reducing their their impacts we've seen um obviously they do need to have a financial and a political um framework in which to work but they're desperate to meet their climate reduction targets uh, uh, explain that I'm not, you know why, why the, if they could go on just being irresponsible but making money well number one they do have targets that they have to meet so we as a nation we have net zero targets by 2050 but the industrial clusters that we're working with they've signed up to trying to decarbonize faster and our aim is to get an industrial cluster to net zero by 2030 Sounds a challenge. It is a challenge, but we know we need to be working quickly and we know we need to be really setting tough goals to help us meet these things in the future. And I think there's there are lots of ways in which we can do it, but it will take a phenomenal amount of effort so, on everyone's I mean, part. So, so describe this cluster, you know, what's it look like, who's involved? So in the UK, we have a number of what's been classified by the UK government as industrial clusters. There's Port Talbot in South Wales. There's one down in Southampton that's based around sort of the marine industry. There's Teesside. There's one up in Scotland, which is sort of around the sort of the old coal industry and the industry that sprung up around that. So often these um, clusters are in areas which have had a vast amount of industry in the past. Some of that industry is still going and is very um, economically viable, but often they're in areas of deprivation as well. So what we want to do is make sure that when we're looking at this carbon dioxide coming out of these industrial clusters, is not just what can we do with this carbon dioxide to make a difference on a global scale, but also what can we do to make a difference to those particular regions, providing 
real jobs, education, skilled work around these particular clusters and decarbonisation. So these clusters are kind of industrial ecosystems, are they? With yes. different people sort of, in a, one person picks up someone else's waste. Okay, so um, if we capture the carbon dioxide from a stack, for example, then we have to process that carbon dioxide and we can use a microbial pr- process. You so feed we'll it to need, bacteria so, or something? Or... So, yes, yeah, so that's one of the things that we, that we can do. And then we take, we take that and we're working with colleagues in the University of South Wales who are leading that particular aspect of it. Um, and then we can pull in other industries around that. So water industry, for example, or some of the plastics manufacturers who will then come in and we can then use it for going out into the farming industry. So people like the NFU might be interested. Because... Um, they get fertiliser or what? We could optimise these sort of some of the CO2 for, for fertiliser or for enhanced crop growth. And so there could be that, as you say, that huge big ecosystem around it. What we're do, trying to do here is trying to work out what the optimal use for this CO2 is because we see CO2 as a commodity now. You know, so let's stop thinking about it as something which is going into the atmosphere and causing a problem. Obviously it is. But if we can turn that on its head then we can make it something that people need and people want. Because I think that in the future, that's what's going to happen. We're going to need to use that carbon. We need carbon for all of the products that we're relying on. So let's take it from the waste. And timescales, you say you want to get these things going by 2030, and presumably you want to measure that they're having an impact. Absolutely. It's a tough call. Um, (laughs) But um, there are some pilot scale um, projects up and running now and I'm part of a big UK based um, research project called IDRIC which is the Industrial Decarbonisation Research and Innovation Centre and there are huge amounts of universities and industry all working together collaboratively to really make sure we meet our targets get these things we're up and running um, within the next five to ten years and that's our remit the circular economy marcel mcmanus describes and the consumer choices outlined earlier by professor lorraine whitmarsh are keys to net zero but they need to be financed which means rethinking the economy more generally And that is the expertise of my final guest on the podcast, Professor Anya Zaliska, who specialises in financial regulation and reform for green finance and climate change in the University of Bath's new School of Management building. Whenever we think about financing or investing, we think or should be thinking about long term. This is not just for today, this is for the future. So any investing should really think about returns and performance and effects that uh, our actions will have for uh, next decade, two decades, next generation. So in fact, you know, any investing should be green. Any investing, if we think that should be sustainable. And sustainable finance, or some people, you know, abbreviated to green finance, it's exactly what we should have in mind. So for me, you know, financing green is just restricting us to doing particular activities. This focus may be on environment rather than talking about governance and sustainability in a broader sense. It seems to me that the, this may be too trivial, but the the way that capitalism works is that someone has a billion dollars or a billion pounds to 
invest somewhere and they will put it where that investment has a good return. And I'm not sure in what way you can steer that investment towards, let's say, a a solar farm or some kind of, I don't know, resilient uh, infrastructure as opposed to some other quick profit option. Well, I mean, finance, we always struggle with so-called short-termism or myopia that people think about returns right now, not only that they are delivered right now, but because typically they are associated with lower risk. Investing over time always creates this time value of money effect and uncertainty what happened in the future and the longer period we have to wait to see our returns um, on our investments, of course, the more we risk. But, you know, how people should invest, it's really the question of what they have in mind. If millionaires want to be millionaires today and tomorrow, but not day after, that's fine. We cannot force them to do that. But the delivery of net zero transformation, it's not really just about billionaires, okay? They have most of the money, they have a capital, they can influence politics probably, they can influence big financial decisions, but net zero is very much about ordinary citizens as it's about big financiers. And this part of a green transformation should not be forgotten. But if you want to redirect the decisions that people are making, how do you do that using financial initiatives? Well, first of all, what we have to think in mind is understanding financial concepts. But when it comes to investing as such, especially when it comes to ordinary people, putting pressure sometimes on companies, putting pressure on the asset managers, opting for particular investment when it comes to long-term investments in pensions, is very much about financial education. It's about people understanding what valuation is, how it might work, and what is good for them, and what is sustainable in the sense that returns won't be generated only today, but they will be generated, you know, in 10 years and 20 years. I I mean, I suppose I consider myself to be financially pretty ignorant. You know, I I barely managed to keep my bank account (laughs) in credit. Is, Is it also a role for the government to redefine the landscape to help those choices? Very much. I think, you know, here it cannot be underestimated how important the role of governments is and uh, how important it is in shaping policies and how important it is in showing the direction, not only the goal that is to be achieved, can be seen, for example, in the context of Norway and how they are with their green transformation. When it comes to the government, especially maybe in this country, it's important to think that in delivering net zero, it's not only saying that by 2050 we have to achieve it. When it comes to any policy, including this of net zero, it's important that government has a clear path how to get there. Net zero, it's not only about building uh, solar farms. This is not only about decision whether we've got onshore or offshore with uh, renewable energy. This is very much about changing people's habits, uh, preparing people for more active life uh, when it comes to decision making, whether it's financial or environmental. This is very much about helping people to make informed choices and support them in those choices. I mean, it's very interesting. And when you talk about 
our own financial choices and our own investments, uh, energy would be an interesting one. You know, every decade or so, someone like myself has to think about replacing a gas-fired boiler. And at that point, it seems to me that some kind of direction from the government that all natural gas will be phased out by, let's say, 2035, would have a big influence on the choice of what to use in replacement, even today, you know, before 2025. Absolutely. So-called heat problem, it's it's a major problem. It's not just a major problem, it's a major problem. And what you just said, you know, about uh, how we are going to heat our houses is an issue. And it's extremely costly. Um, Of course, we have to replace boilers and we do it regularly. But the problem is that um, replacing boilers with heat pumps is extremely expensive. Not everyone, even if people who are aware and willing to do that, I mean, to buy uh, heat pumps, they can afford them. And um, there is a question what the government does to support people who can't afford putting extra insulation, buying, um, investing into the heat pump or installing uh, solar panels. And um, so far from the government, we've got very mixed uh, messages, you know, cancellation of Green Homes Grant scheme just before COP26 was a big blow. The cost of green transformation will increase the longer the waiting time is to start talking and doing serious things about it. And the estimates how much the adoption of net zero will cost changes from one valuation to another, right? Some people say, oh, you'll have to put 30 billion a year. Some say, some say it will be 50 billion. Some increase it even to 70 billion. Everything depends, you know, the, the, those estimates grow with the shorter period we have to achieve it by the deadline that was given by the government. And there's also another issue. Very often businesses and individuals are presented with this green transformation as a cost. I remember probably five or six years ago, I was talking at an international conference about challenges and opportunities of um, delivering net zero. And I was talking about it in the context of opportunities. We should not put in people's minds that the green transformation is just the cost. And there are often, this is the narrative the government and regulators take, oh, this is a cost, you have to face it. They don't present it that like in any investment, you put money forward and you get your return later. The green transformation is so massive that it cannot be achieved by taxation. And anyway, if there is a risk that government, I'm not talking just about British government, but any government would tax people and then redirect the money to non-green projects, it's probably better than people do it themselves. However, people have to have money to do it. People have to see the incentive for doing it. People um, have to be encouraged to do it. So definitely the green transformation has to be the cost of green transformation will ultimately be faced by households and will ultimately be faced by businesses. But rather than thinking about it as a cost, I would very much love if people and businesses started to think about it as the new way of living, as the better way of living, as the better strategy of doing businesses, as a more profitable way of doing businesses, as a sustainable way of doing businesses, something that will last not 
year two or three years, but will last generations. So we will finance it. We have no choice. And the sooner we start financing it, the lower cost of it will be, and the sooner we'll see the benefits of it. Professor Anja Zaliska, bringing us to the end of this episode of Research with Impact from the University of Bath. In the next podcast, the question will be, how can we make big data work for society? I'll be talking to Professors Chris Budd and Linda Nunes and to Dr David Ellis to dive deeper into how technologies are changing the way we live and do business in the digital age. If you want to find out more about the research projects we've been discussing in the episode, you can visit go.bath.ac.uk slash researchwithimpact, and that's with hyphens, or follow at Uni of Bath. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please like and subscribe. See you next time.